Thank you all for coming out on this, one of our probably last beautiful days of 2017. Uh, but we're really, uh, really glad you could make it today. Um, before we get started, uh, I just wanted to, uh, for those of you who uh, haven't had a chance to come to one of our Focus 45 talks before, just give you a little bit of insight about what those talks are. Um, these are monthly uh, talks that happen with uh, either museum staff or uh, uh, researchers, other folks who are using the collections for research uh, or in other ways. And for, this really kind of gives them a forum to talk about some of the stuff that they're looking at, projects that they're working on, and give the public uh, some insight to some of the things that are going on kind of behind the scenes here. Um, so before I introduce today's speaker, I just want to let everybody know that our next uh, Focus 45 is going to be on October 21st with Associate Curator Jamie Allen. She's going to be talking about her upcoming History of Photography rotation. Um, so we're looking forward to that. Um, which I actually want to note, because normally we do that on the day that the exhibition opens. Uh, but we're doing it a week later this time just because uh, I think it's image photo finish 5k right yeah so do that too um, okay so uh, today's talk is going to be with Ellen Handy um, she has been uh, work she's been researching in the uh, Department of Photography's collection for the uh, past three years uh, she's been researching for her upcoming publication histories of photography and introduction and uh, Ellen is the former executive curator of photography and visual collections at Harry Ransom Center and curator of collections at International Center of Photography. Currently, she is an associate professor at the City University of New York. Please join me in welcoming Ellen Handy. Thank you so much. And let me just echo the thanks to everyone who came on this beautiful day to sit in the dark. I hope I have enough exciting photographs to show you that you'll be glad that you sacrificed the sunshine. Okay, here's a photograph about photography, about seeing the world. It raises some enduring questions about what photography is, how we imagine it, and what it does. There's a lot of history of photography we can explore by means of this solitary house represented as a faux daguerreotype. This object was made in 1973. In today's digital present, perhaps we have different and even more complicated ways to reflect upon the photographic medium past and present. We'll return to this image in a few minutes. So we'll return to it right now. Uh, before we go further, let me just note that almost all of the images I will be showing you come from the collections of this museum, but just a few have slipped in which aren't Eastman Museum photos, so I've indicated the captions of those in blue on the slides so you'll know which is which. This caption is in black. This photograph is here. So what do we think photography is? Is it this? This? Or maybe this? I'm sorry, I'm hitting the, yeah, the right button. Or this? You can actually get street view of the Canyon de Chez, which astonished me when I looked for it. 
Thank you. Or is photography now this? Or this? Oh, isn't that funny? <laughs> On my computer, the words lined up in two columns. Go figure, formatting of PowerPoint, doesn't matter. Is photography, art, science, technology, business, communication, amusement, magic, document? <laughs> or is it all of the above? Apologies for the graphics. I hope all my slides won't <laughs> come out mangled. I'm in the camp of all of the above and more, especially the <coughs> and more part. What interests me about photography is its breadth, inclusiveness, and heterogeneity. And there is nowhere on earth where we can better consider and embrace that breadth than right here, the Georgie Smith House Museum. From the perspective of today, the most striking thing about the photographic museum is its multiplicity. It has many histories, not one, and they are all to be found under this roof. In this building, people have been thinking intensely about photography since George Eastman's Grand Palazzo was finished and he moved in. But even more intensively since the building, since the museum's opening here in 1949. That's a deep saturation in photography thoughts. Probably more people have thought about photography here than anywhere else in the world, and we are adding to those imaginary accumulated archaeological strata of photographic thoughts right now. But of course, this building is much more than a place where people think about photography. It's a place where the widest possible range of photography is gathered and preserved including many fascinating acquisitions made over the years by the curators and collection managers who served the museum in its considerable history, some of whom have been my friends, colleagues, and mentors. When I think about the marvelous images and objects in this building, I think also about the different people who chose them, found them, researched them and exhibited them and embedded them in the continually evolving compendium that is the museum's collection. Each person who served on the staff here has added to the legacy and each has viewed the medium in a very different way. That succession of curators over time has helped the museum to achieve its astonishing range of collections. Photography is an almost infinitely diverse medium, and decade after decade, the museum has found different ways to celebrate that. My strategy in coming to terms with this bounty is not to grasp it tightly or even to draw a very wide boundary around it, but rather to assume that photography is everywhere, about everything, involved with everything, inseparable from our lives, visions, understandings of the world. We are so fortunate to live in a moment when we can look backward in history and see the unexpected and various evolutions of the medium in different places at different times. The ways it uses science to make art or to capture a rainbow in a small piece of glass, puts a circle around a vacation memory, looks up and looks down at the world, 
contrives scenarios and emulates them, and sometimes just presents shape and form for their own associations. Running your eyes across this melange of images, you'll see light caught on frost crystals, bouncing off stone blocks in the Egyptian sun, and beaming from a movie projector to a screen. One of photography's inventors, William Henry Fox Talbot, called it quite a little bit of magic realized. He was right. We find this breadth of images in the George Eastman Museum collections, and they give us many different ways to recount the histories of photography. So many different ways, in fact, that I couldn't fit all the images I wanted to into the last slide and have to add a few more on here, while privately mourning a plethora of others left on the cutting room floor. In preparing to give this talk, I feverishly downloaded enough JPEGs from the museum collections to fill up several hours of continuous slideshow of nifty or astonishing or beautiful or famous things. Finally, I just threw in the towel and accepted that the few would have to stand for the many, but it wasn't easy. As the 21st century wears on, and as digital imaging has all but replaced traditional photography, it's an excellent moment to look back over the history of the medium and ask how we understand it today. Here, at the oldest museum in the world to be devoted to photography, the past, present, and future of photography are always reaching out to each other. What I value most about this museum is that it's the world's best place to explore the materiality of the photographic medium. Photographs do have philosophical and critical avatars, of course, but ultimately they are objects located in space and time. Each one is a material thing created by the action of light. When you hold them in your hand, you literally touch history, and they possess weight, texture, smell. They even make different sounds when you set them down on a table or a Gannett study center. The hands in purple gloves in these photographs are engaged in what is most fundamental to understanding the photographic medium, hands-on study face-to-face, eyes-on-the-object, in-person. This is where museums play their most irreplaceable role as cultural stewards, making sure that these eloquent objects are safe and present to speak to future generations of curious viewers. The objects themselves are the history of photography. The George Eastman Museum is literally the home of the history of photography, not only because it was once the home of the man who did so much to create the photographic industry and medium that many of us grew up with, or because it's the oldest and greatest museum dedicated to the camera arts, but also because it was here that Beaumont Newhall codified his history of photography in a book form in 1949. And as an aside, I have to say that if nothing else I show you today is memorable, I am pretty sure that the chance to see the founding father of the history of photography in his striped pajamas is worth the price of admission. 
I'm a child of Beaumont Newhall, and so are most of the photography curators, historians, and scholars I know, although there is now a younger generation coming up for whom Newhall is only one among a pantheon of historiographic ancestors. I first learned the history of photography from the Yellow Book, and I first taught it when I became a professor myself from the Red Book. More recently, I've become interested in that Yellow Book's earlier editions, the original Museum of Modern Art exhibition catalog of 1937, its revised edition of the following year, and most importantly, the 1949 version, in which an earlier sketchy exhibition-based text was transformed into art history, into authority, into the history of photography, a publication which appeared after Newhall left the Museum of Modern Art and joined the nascent George Eastman House Museum. To repurpose Wordsworth a bit, I can't help thinking that bliss it must have been in that dawn of the history of photography to be alive and in Rochester. The bliss Wordsworth had in mind, of course, was the excitements of the French Revolution, but I'm thinking of the moment when two of the mightiest instruments in the history of photography, Newhall's book and the museum, first offered the world coherent and comprehensive ways of thinking about the marvel that is photography. The book is a foundation for thinking about the medium, and it shares many of the best qualities of the photography collection here. Newhall was a trained art historian and a connoisseur, and he recognized that the many possibilities of the medium were its greatest gift and most fundamental nature. Newhall's I'm sorry, am I not going forward enough? Don't forward too far. Lisa, there you are. I told you. <laughs> Newhall's breadth of vision is apparent here, by the way. I find that despite that proverb we all know, it is almost always a good idea to judge books by their covers. They tell us a lot. Please note that while Newhall's title announces one history of photography, the cover design can't help but include many very different images. Daguerre, Cartier-Bresson, Abbott, Russell, I think, um, Coburn, and Clarence White. The Museum of Modern Art's name is still on that cover, but really the book is more consonant with the vision and mission of the new museum in this mansion, whose curator Newhall now was, and whose director he would soon become. In my father's house, there are many mansions. In George Eastman's house, there are many histories of photography. But really, I think in a sense, it's Beaumont Newhall's house. Let's see if I have the right one. Or maybe it would be more accurate to say that it's now Bruce Barnes and Lisa Hostetler's house and that of their many colleagues here. That's what a museum is a place where many stories can be told and where those stories change over time as the people telling them change and as their audiences change as well. This is where the museum has the advantage over the written history. It flexibly transforms a little bit every day 
as its new acquisitions arrive, receive accession numbers, and join the collection, while books tend to be fixed in the moment of their publication. When I studied the history of photography in school, it was exclusively photography as fine art, and I hope you can hear the capital F and capital A when I say that. There was much to learn and a magnificent canon of photographs to pursue, but that fine art history of photography did leave out an awful lot that I'd prefer to include, such as, for instance, this collection of odd and very objecty photo objects here, none of which would have found places easily in a curriculum intent only upon fine art photography. These artifacts exemplify one of the histories of photography not always told. You're probably getting the idea by now that I'd like the history of photography to encompass as much as possible which is just another way of saying that I definitely believe in having my cake and eating it too. Or, for that matter, having my cake and my ice cream as well. And in this surprisingly subtly chromatic color photograph, I'm fascinated, not least, by the question of just how many scoops of ice cream are supposed to end up on each one of those servings of cake. It's kind of a problem. Let's return to Betty Hahn's marvelous soft daguerreotype. Like a real daguerreotype, its image is silvery and reflective. It tells us that photography combines craft and concept in equal measures, and that photography is about itself and the world. The photographer looks out at the world to make images, but also may rummage through the history of photography to repurpose old processes, ideas, tropes, and conventions, and to join old and new. Technique is important and requires virtuosity and ingenuity, but it only gains from its service to an idea. Yet for Han, the idea doesn't demand primacy, as in austere conceptual art. Rather, it's embodied in a literally huggable, velvety, soft sculpture. The soft daguerreotype compactly embodies a number of different important photographic concerns. But what are photography's concerns overall? Oh, life and death and sex and love and truth and fiction, fact, history, anthropology, philosophy and religion, places and faces and bodies and souls, the earth and the heavens and the oceans, artifacts and objects and commodities, dreams, desires, aspirations and memories, fears, injustices, dangers, and joys, families and strangers, and enemies, science and medicine, and industry and politics, narrative, illustration, abstraction, the known and the unknown. Have I left anything out? <laughs> With all those subjects and concerns, photography is a protean complex thing, and it's become clear to me that there is no such thing as the history of photography. There's only the histories, plural, of photography. 
history of art photography, history of documentary photography, of photojournalism, or advertising, or propaganda, or medical imaging, modern and postmodern photographies, commercial and amateur photography, or the history of photographic process, qua process, photography of the world and in the world. You get the idea. There's so many histories of photography. So, the research project I have been working on for a few years now is a book about those multiple histories of the medium. The main way I work on this book is to keep getting on airplanes to come here to visit the vast image troves of this museum and to let them educate me about the many histories of photography. The staff of the museum also kindly take the time to share with me what they know, what they think I should know, what it's most important to see. And partly, what I study, of course, is the history of the museum itself. For any photographic researcher, this museum is a gold mine. No, not that kind of open pit gold mine in Brazil with environmental abuses and worrisome labor practices. This kind of gold mine. A gold mine the, um, of archival storage boxes stretching towards the vanishing point of a far horizon and generous staff members rolling out carts of treasures for visiting researchers eagerly awaiting them in the study room. Of course I've visited other museums of many types, in libraries and archives and photography centers all over the US and abroad, but I keep coming back here because this is the font in origin for the history of photography, the source for my thinking about how the most important and thrilling thing about the medium is its breadth, heterogeneity, and multifariousness. Susan Sontag said that to collect photographs is to collect the world. So Rochester turns out to be where the world is collected, right here in the city where modern understandings of photography were engineered and sold to or imposed upon the world by a spectacularly successful corporation founded by the man in whose house were gathered. This museum is a chronicle of that development, but also much more. This has always been photography's museum and never merely Kodak's. But while it's photography's museum, it's not a museum that seeks to define photography. Defining photography is very hard. It has a way of escaping us. Reach out to define it and you find nothing in your hands, like trying to reach out the window of an airplane and grasp a cloud. After all, defining photography is like trying to put a rectangle around the world to see it whole. Sometimes the fuller picture comes from many different views. This museum has many different ways to tell the histories of photography, and each exhibition on view offers us a differently framed view of the whole. The outward and visible sign of the museum's vision is the exhibition program, of course. Exhibitions are an immediate form of engagement with the public. Who is that public, though? This museum belongs to many communities. The people of Rochester, who most easily get to see its shows, the readers of museum publications, photographers, 
the international community of historians of photography, indeed the world. This museum is the place where photography sees itself and can be seen in relation to itself. One of the most evident ways photography is seen in relation to itself here is through the program of contemporary photography exhibitions, which by appearing in the context of the museum are implicitly connected to previous exhibitions and to the collections. So how do the collections of the museum reflect photography's many histories? Unless one is a staff member or a fortunate visiting researcher, the collections might seem somewhat shadowy and unknowable. The first thing to consider is that the fabled Eastman Museum photography collection is a collection of collections assembled from other assemblages. The three foundational collections of the museum were each the work of a different individual. Those men's varying interests and points of view shaped their choices about what to collect, though in truth they all shared a sort of drive towards completion which verges on the obsessive and for which we should be profoundly grateful today. Gabriel Comer was the scholar and esthete of the three, a Frenchman, a photographer, and a man of exquisitely antiquarian sensibilities his original goal was to form a history of photography collection, celebrating the accomplishments of his countrymen in the medium, a collection which he dreamed would one day become the nucleus of a national museum in France. His collection is disciplined, scholarly, and focused. This famous daguerreotype portrait of Daguerre himself by Sabatier Bloch in its handsome frame is typical of the treasures of the earliest years of the medium, which Cromer amassed and displayed in his home. As a collector, he was curatorial and scholarly in approach. Alden Scott Boyer, a Chicago <coughs> businessman, collected with exuberant broad and slightly mad passion. His other interests besides photography included collecting mechanical automata, performing dogs, and chamber parts. As a collector, he was energetic, resourceful, persistent, and omnivorous. He filled a former bank building in Chicago to the brim with his finds and called it his museum, though by all accounts it more closely resembled a gigantic storage locker packed <coughs> full of acquisitions. Boyer was intensely knowledgeable about photography and his collection, and he built a mighty reference library, but he was more an eccentric and an enthusiast than a scholar per se. The Eastman Museum's extensive holdings of Hill and Adams and calotypes come largely from the Boyer collection. Unlike the portrait of Daguerre from Cromer's collection, in which Daguerre boldly engaged the camera, this sitter seems to be intent upon perusing another photograph which we can barely see. Lewis Walton Sipley shared Cromer and Boyer's museological bent, succeeding in forming his own American Museum of Photography in Philadelphia in 1940. He concentrated most intently on American photography with a special interest in photomechanical processes and color. 
His collection was acquired after his death by the 3M Corporation, which eventually gave it to this museum. Some of the most delightful and unexpected photographs I've come across at the museum turn out to be from the Sipley collection. This humorous illustration of a scientist pondering a biscuit with slide rule in hand captures what it's like to study anything with absorption. I wish Kepler had also photographed a photographic historian researching in the study center. It would be a similar expression on the face, I think. The Cromer, Boyer, and Sipley collections are only part of the immense holdings of the museum. I often sit at home and poke around in these collection records online. Fortunately for all those of us who live at a distance from here, it's now easy to benefit from the richness of collections and knowledge in this building. The dragon horde of photographs here is also a beacon of illumination that works at a distance, like a lighthouse casting a beam out to sea. And the wonderful photographic process history videos put the past and the future in relation to each other very effectively and are viewed by people all over the world, particularly my students. Okay, so as you know, I'm presently trying to write a chronicle of the many histories of photography, a book that might work a little bit like a photography museum between covers, which of course means I'm following in Beaumont and Wall's footsteps. In my view, photography is the most generous of media, so eager to include the entire world, so multiple and prolific, so able to capture infinite detail. It's abundant and uncontainable, like the rush of water that makes this cup overflow. When I imagine finishing the book that I'm working on, I see it like this, with this photograph by Samuel Edgerton on its cover. And it was only when I began putting together this talk that I remembered, oh yeah, there's another book about photography with an Edgerton on the cover. And I realized that although it's a very different Edgerton, there's an unconscious influence evidently at work here. Not all the photographs that fascinate me here have that rushed, that, sorry, I can't say this correctly, fluid rushing quality. Those three words in a row don't want to come out. That fluid rushing quality, of course, or a gelatin silver prints. Other images represent the alchemy of light and precious metals result from the intimate face-to-face -face embrace of paper negative and paper print, or derive from sheets of glass pressed into service as negatives. Some are images that weigh heavy in the hand or are large enough to be challenging to wrangle in their mats. Here's another group to admire. Each time I do the picture puzzle required to fill up the slide with images like these, I see each one in a new way according to how it interacts with the others adjacent to it. And I am certain that everyone in this room sees each picture differently than I do. So let's look together more closely at some individual pictures. One of the most tremendous things to be found in the museum here is material from before the dawn of photography, 
precious objects that help us to recall and imagine the unimaginable, a world without photography, a world in which the work of invention of photography needed to be done. The inventors of photography were numerous, but the one who best represented the medium's origins in the fine arts was Daguerre, a trained scenic and trompe l'oeil painter whose diorama presented illusionistic light effects upon gigantic realistic paintings to dazzled audiences. In all ways, photography starts with light. It's made from light. It was imagined and invented in light. Light emerging from darkness is one of the most resonant metaphors we have, and one tied to the concept of beginnings, let there be light. In this ravishing sketch by Daguerre, clotted oil paint on plushy dark brown velvet captures a glimmer of moonlight falling in a forest. The ability of the light to define the forms of the trees, to produce an aura of mysterious reverie, to direct our attention inward to the center of the composition, these are all powers photography was shortly to possess and employ. To see this painting is to know the mind of Daguerre in the critical years just before his announcement of photography, to understand his understanding of the power of light. This painting is a prediction of a future of the photographic medium to come. Here's an astonishing object of very different material qualities. Small, heavy, a smoothly polished metal plate with a delicate and luminous sheen of silver on its surface. It resembles a painting, not a Barbizon school-style romantic landscape like Daguerre's painting on velvet. This plate resembles contemporary abstract painting. It's an unused daguerreotype plate, a picture of nothing. It's a daguerreotype waiting to happen, a surface upon which any possible image in the world could have appeared. It is an object of purest potentiality. It's the mirror with a memory that hadn't yet formed any memories and still reflects all the light that strikes it rather than preserving its imprints. This museum is well known for its extensive holdings of Southworth and Hawes' work, among which are any number of extraordinary and powerful images. But this plate is the one that speaks to me the most for the inchoate magic of all that might have been represented upon it. Imagine the day on which the photographers held it in their hands, turned it toward the camera, and then didn't make an exposure. Did a sitter fail to keep an appointment? Did clouds prevent a day's work? Or does this plate represent a specific pictorial intention, which through chance circumstances was never fulfilled? Here's another image where imagination completes what's apparent to the eye. At first glance, it's a familiar colonial-era genre scene of an ethnographic type posing in a studio. In fact, it's a series of conundrums and unexpected pleasures. There's the melange of patterns and the invisible figure's draperies, 
not to mention the regular geometry of the carpet across which the unconvincingly painted backdrop seems slightly askew. There's the flare of light from the imitation opening to the unknown in the backdrop on the left and the shadowed unknown person beneath the costume, both speaking to the unknown and the unknowable, to the ways in which the camera surprises us by not being able to deliver all possible details, despite our hunger for an expectation of complete visual information. The Daguerre painting may be the single most ravishing object I have seen at this museum, but the most exciting photographic viewing experience I have ever had was of the Lippmann plate you see in these three views. Looking at a Lippmann plate is an adventure. First, you see an unimpressive foggy sheet of glass, a little like an extremely bad amber type. Then, you meticulously align yourself and a light source to just the right positions and something happens. You find that amidst the gray fog is concealed a blaze of brilliant color. I can compare the experience to two different things. First, it's like the moment in the movie of the Wizard of Oz when Dorothy lands in Oz and suddenly the world is in color. And it's also like a total eclipse of the sun until you experience one, understanding how it works in no way prepares you for the experience. It's interesting to know that Lippmann's process is the first successful form of photography in color by direct exposure in the camera, but the excitement of the process really lies in experiencing it yourself. It's the most you-had-to-be-there photographic experience possible. These small, humble objects on glass are an opportunity to see the mighty Alfred Stieglitz before he was Stieglitz, when he was just an amateur, a young man making his way by projecting his work in the form of lantern slides at camera club meetings. You have to imagine seeing not this backlit image of the slides on a light table, but a wall-sized version of each projected on a screen like this, through a lantern slide projector. There are images meant to be seen by a crowd. These are the simple paper mounts that Stieglitz's fingers fumbled into the projector, annotated in his handwriting, and giving evidence of much use. One slide is a disconcertingly humdrum, snapshotty travel picture, while the other is an iconic image, which was soon to become famous when Stieglitz printed it and integrated it into his evolving self-image as a heroic and solitary modernist photographer, facing the elements, taking the pulse of the city, finding in the storm a powerful correlative to his own emotional states. There are many museums where we can see the mature Stieglitz's master prints, but it's rare to have a glimpse behind the scenes of his carefully produced image and reputation. Here's another radiant image, and it has the added excitement of being a secret thing. 
outside of the engineering team who worked on it and museum staff and some curious researchers here, not many people know about it. It's a formerly classified 1950s aerial reconnaissance image. The museum also possesses the gigantic camera which made it, which was bolted into an aircraft and flown over the terrain to be surveilled. The line drawing you see here shows you the workings of that camera. And of course, it's one of the marvels of this museum that its technology and photography, not to mention film and library collections, complement each other in so many ways. In the upper left, you see the viewer for the images. It comes in a little wooden box the size of an old-fashioned portable record player, for those of you old enough to remember such gadgets. In the upper right, you see that image turned on. It's essentially a hemispheric light box with what looks like a glowing half-crystal ball protruding. On top of that, you place the convex hemispheric shell image on film, a detail of which you see here at the lower left. This particular view is of Middletown, Connecticut, with its lazy S-bend of the Connecticut River clearly visible. Apparently, this technique of survey photography didn't meet the needs of the military, and the program was discontinued. But from the point of view of the historian of photography, this remains a wholly compelling object. This print, by contrast, is a more familiar and frequently seen thing, a signature work of Graciela Iturbide's, in fact. It's a powerful portrait of a formidable woman and some impressive iguanas. I'm particularly intrigued by the way the light catches the leftmost iguana and shadow pools beneath the woman's chin, echoing the darkness beneath the architectural element behind her on the right, emphasizing the solidity of foundations of both woman and building. I know this photograph well. The International Center of Photography in New York, where I used to be a curator, owns a print. But what this photograph says and means at that museum, a temple built to photojournalism, is very different from the suggestions it makes here at a museum of photography. Here, it speaks not only of its subject, but also of the medium's essential ability to present moments as essences. So to recap, this is what I've been trying to tell you, that there are many histories of photography in this house. And sometimes even many houses within this house. I've been talking quite a lot about the past. But of course, all of the many histories of photography are in dialogue with the present and the future as well. How do we get from the present to the future, and what do we lose from the past when we make that voyage? One photographer whose work has explored precisely those questions is Robert Burley, who set himself the task of chronicling the industrial and technical transition of the photographic medium from film to digital imaging. His approach was broadly social, addressing in detail 
the changes in communities, and even the urban fabric itself that resulted from the coming of digital imaging. Here you see a photo studio which closed when its proprietor retired with no successor in sight. And on the right, a scene that may be familiar to some of you. Were any of you in the crowd on the day when these buildings at Kodak Park came down? Maybe. Burley spent a few years documenting the ending of film-based photographic practice and the rise of digital imaging. It's the end of an era, but certainly not the end of photography. Here's one important photographer whose works, I believe, are not yet represented in the museum's collections. This is an installation view depicting part of a very large work that's the grid of brightly colored images. Its title explains exactly what it is, 2,303,057 different suns cropped from photographs found posted on Flickr on one day in 2007. Umbrico searched the web to come up with millions of snapshots taken outdoors, which included the sun, I'm guessing mostly sunset views. She appropriated them, cropped them, and combined them into what looks like a radiant mosaic. The work reaches back to the origins of the medium to recall Talbot's description of early photographs as sun pictures. It comments on the almost unimaginably large quantities of photographs being produced and shared today, and it reminds us of the continual transformations of a medium which picks up new tools as they are invented and puts them to work in the service of imaging and reflecting on imaging. I've shown you an assortment of remarkable photographic objects most of which I've seen here, each of which helps me to tell the stories of photography in a different way. It was an eccentric selection, but that's the privilege of a visiting researcher. If you want a more cogent and measured selection to outline photography's histories, it is available. The curatorial staff of this museum have permanently given over one important gallery to tellings and retellings of the history of photography through selections of images and objects. The history of the medium is always on view there, but every few months it looks completely different. That continual transformation and revision is what I find most characteristic of photography. The museum will never be done telling those stories, both because photography continues to evolve but also because the possible ways to look backward at it in historical retrospect are innumerable. As I've tried to suggest today, you can tell an awful lot of the history of photography even just by thinking about one single object. How you tell the history of photography is up to you, and it all depends on where you decide to start. And if you want to start from this museum, its collection offers you literally millions of different places to begin. Thank you for listening to me tell you about the photographs where I begin to tell the stories of photography.